Hey, this is Nick here. I wanted to send a quick message to the founders out there. If you're raising your first round of capital and you're not located in the Bay Area, New York City, or Boston, we'd love to connect with you. Newstack leads deals for founders that don't fit the standard Silicon Valley profile and are located in undercapitalized areas. If that describes you, or if you know a startup that fits that description, please send us an email. It's team at newstack.vc. Now here's a word from our partners. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. Pacific Western is the leading provider of venture debt and banking services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors. Go to pacwest.com to learn more. Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Welcome back to TFR for another cram session. In these special releases, we have aggregated the takeaways and tips from previous episodes. If you'd like a focused refresher on previous topics covered, stay tuned for this cram session. Up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode, A New Era of Startup Investing, Angel Evolution with Christopher Mirabile. A huge thanks to Christopher for joining us today. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. Number one is on old performance benchmarks. Having a crisp, efficient, and effective process is now just table stakes. Angels and groups can no longer differentiate on the traditional elements of professionalism. Getting strong volume and quality deal flow, moving through it quickly, having highly efficient meetings, and conducting thorough due diligence are now just an expectation, not a differentiator. The second major takeaway is on new sources of differentiation. Christopher cited five elements that have contributed to the evolution and professionalism of angel groups. Those included becoming more returns and reporting oriented to attract investors to groups, more effort into professionalism, focus, and training of angels, evolution into life cycle financiers where more capital is committed and staged over a longer period of a startup's life cycle, taking on more responsibility in driving performance and in particular exits, And finally, taking a more active role in incubating and accelerating portfolio companies. And the third and final takeaway is on unprofessional fundraising and investing. As Christopher mentioned, you don't make money in this asset class by being sloppy, cutting corners, moving fast, or not doing due diligence, and overpaying for assets. You make money by making careful selections, protecting the investment, and helping portfolio companies achieve their potential. And also remember that there are ways within and outside of crowdfunding that can ruin a startup and their cap table. Christopher mentioned that raising money too early, too much, and at too high of a valuation has many times led to the death of great startups because there's not enough equity left for a subsequent fundraise to be viable. That wraps up our key takeaways. Let's move on to the tip of the week, which is current drivers in crowdfunding. Today, we talked about some of the key drivers in crowdfunding that angels or interested seed investors should look out for. Recall that we discussed two main drivers that seem to be on opposite sides of the spectrum. The first related to the definition of an accredited investor. 
There is the potential that the SEC will change the definition of an accredited investor because it is one that has not been updated in quite some time. The argument is that due to changing times and inflation, the values that determine accreditation are too low. The proposal that I've seen advocates for doubling the requirements. So instead of a million dollars of net worth excluding one's home, it would be $2 million of net worth excluding one's home. And instead of 200 k of individual net income in two consecutive years, it could increase to 400 k of individual net income in two consecutive years. There also may be allowances for individuals that don't meet the monetary requirements to pass a test of sophistication that would grant them accreditation. Either way, this clearly would significantly reduce the pool of accredited investors in the U.S. and subsequently significantly contract the amount of money available for seed stage startups. The second major factor has to do with Title III of the JOBS Act that allows for equity crowdfunding for the non-accredited. This is currently not in effect. Remember from Episode 3 with David S. Rose that this provision, if passed, would allow those that don't meet the definition to invest. If enacted, this will only go into effect under strict guidelines. But quite conversely to item number one, this would significantly increase the pool of startup investors and also the amount of money available for seed stage startups. As Christopher mentioned, the jury is still out on both of these counteracting drivers. But it is important for those in the angel space or considering entering the space to keep their finger on the pulse of these major drivers and what happens with them in the next year or so. I will commit to relay information as it happens and bring on those guests that can help all of us stay well apprised of the situation. Coming up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode, The Investment Readiness Level, with Steve Blank. Thank you to Steve Blank for joining me. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first takeaway is on faith versus fact. We spent a great deal of time on today's program discussing customer development and testing. Steve articulated that this process can turn a faith-based company into a fact-based company very quickly. While a hypothesis is important, it needs to be disproven or adapted in a way that creates a viable business opportunity. Do founders need to have optimism? Absolutely. Just ensure that this optimism is based on facts and not hope. The second key takeaway is called the snapshot. Recall Steve's comments about seeing a startup pitch and how you are only seeing one snapshot of the startup. This does not give an investor a true sense of the founder's ability to learn, adapt, and pivot for success. What's more important than the current state is the progression of a startup as they proceed with early development and customer testing. This reveals those startups that obsessively pursue solutions to serve their customer market best. And the third and final key takeaway is called industry-specific readiness. The IRL is specific for each industry. The most important factors in determining investment readiness will be different for different verticals. As Steve mentioned, in many markets, product market fit is the most critical element. In others, regulation trumps all. This, in a sense, is another endorsement for focusing on certain sectors or co-investing with those that intimately understand the sector at hand. All right, it's time for the tip of the week, and this week's tip is called Founders Don't Have to Be Oracles. There is a belief that great startup founders need the ability to predict the future. 
As Steve mentioned, every startup that goes through his process learns, adapts, and improves their strategy. It is the interaction with customers and potential customers that yield insights and improvements. When I was a product manager developing a new device for the water analytics industry, 90% of my time was spent talking with and learning from customers. While some artistic ability, of which I have none, is useful, it's not necessary to create products or services that customers will love. This process can very much be a science. And not only can one learn about the pain points customers experience when using products, one will also learn a great deal about how they buy, where they buy, how decisions are made, what regulatory factors influence them, and many other factors that can't be predicted. Steve talked about how he created a culture of customer focus by requiring each member of his team to talk with multiple customers a week. Is the startup you are evaluating obsessed with their customer? How many customers has the startup connected with? Do they have laser focus on the demographic and psychographic profiles of the customers in their target market? A couple of customer calls during due diligence, and you'll probably have your answer. Thanks for joining me again on the program, and a big thanks to Steve for making the time and sharing his thoughts. Coming up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode, The Dark Side of VC, Predatory Investor Practices with Joanne Wilson. So great to get Joanne on the show to share her time with us. Let's recap some of the key takeaways. Number one is stacked notes. Joanne talked about this emerging occurrence of startups that raise a convertible at a certain cap and subsequently proceed to raise additional convertibles at a higher and higher cap instead of doing a traditional price round. The challenge for early investors is that upon conversion, the original terms are no longer fixed and the cap does not apply as initially laid out. Depending on the number of convertibles in the stack and the valuation cap amounts and or discounts at each, the riskiest capital may not be rewarded for the risk taken. And it's often not the founders that are trying to hurt their early investors, but rather the lead VC that comes in at a subsequent round. If they see an opportunity to lower the eventual equity of other investors, they may structure the round as such. All angels should be wary of this, as the stack convertible seems to be becoming more and more common. As Joanne advised, a side note or document that protects the seed investor from cap dilution at a subsequent convertible raise can be a great way to protect against this. The second major key takeaway is called how much to sell. Joanne had a simple recommendation for founders when it comes to the amount of equity sold at each round. She said, you only want to sell 20% of your company at each round. We've talked about this in the past, but Joanne's perspective was unique. If you think about it, every startup that doesn't exit fails because it runs out of money. There are a myriad of reasons why a startup runs out of money, but why let an overinflated valuation be one? I wish there was a study on this so that I could cite some data because I would love to see some figures on the number of startups that have product market fit, a viable business model, a compelling growth trajectory, but have to wind down the business due to an inability to raise because of a previous inflated valuation. Of course, the alternative to setting too high a valuation to get more money is to set the appropriate valuation, but to give away more equity in exchange for more cash. So in this case, the founders are going to sell a higher percentage of the business during the round at hand. Again, if there's not enough equity in later rounds for investors, they will pass. 
And if the founders continue to give away too much, the cap table may be unfixable if they don't have enough of the business to stay motivated and or there's nothing left to sell in exchange for equity. The third and final takeaway is called the role of women as a consumer. I've seen some stats on this now from a few startups about the percentage of online transactions completed by women versus men. Joanne mentioned that about 85% of all online transactions are completed or influenced by women. This is not a recommendation to ignore men when it comes to e-commerce. But whether your target user is an adult woman, a man, or a child, you'd be neglecting a major aspect of user acquisition to ignore the role of women as a purchaser. In the tip of the week on episode 6, we discuss the importance of startups that know the difference between users and purchasers. Clearly, if you are reviewing a startup in e-commerce, it is evident that regardless of target market, the role of women as a purchaser must be well understood. All right, let's wrap up with the tip of the week. This week's tip is called the value-added investor. Joanne mentioned this point about creating a Google group for all the entrepreneurs that she has invested in. And this group has evolved into a nationwide collaborative atmosphere for its constituents. In previous episodes, we've talked about the benefits of accelerator and incubator communities, but we haven't addressed the offline, unformalized embodiments of incubators. As much as an investor can help a startup, other founders, maybe even more so, can benefit from a community of like-minded, driven individuals. When I think of an investor's post-investment contribution to a startup, I don't think of an investor as the difference between success and failure. But I do see three areas where they contribute. Number one is speed. So speed in accessing additional capital, customers, or maybe partners. Number two is cost. Identifying suppliers, service providers, and capital contributors at a competitive and fair rate. And number three is support. So coaching, mentoring, and listening throughout the many challenges that founders face. And as I think about these three areas and Joanne's approach... Not only does she help as an investor, but she's created a powerful crowdsourced community to do it as well. And I would argue that a strong community of entrepreneurs such as hers will probably help each other more so than any investor. We discuss this notion of the portfolio many times, where the best of angels will have a target to invest in 10, 20, or 30 companies. We all won't have 70 significant investments like Joanne but we can aspire to create a portfolio, help our entrepreneurs, and empower them to help each other. At this point, if you're a VC, you've heard of Carta. You've probably even accepted securities from a portfolio company on the platform. It feels like every new company is using Carta, and there's already 16,000 VC-backed companies on the platform. They also offer tools and services for VCs like fund administration. Carta has an army of fund accountants delivering high-quality service and dedicated teams of engineers constantly improving the functionality of their user-friendly investor platform with in-app quarterly reporting, real-time fund metrics, LP portals, and more. It's also easy to switch from an existing fund administrator or to augment your in-house team with their service. Learn more about their services at carta.com forward slash investors. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. 
Pacific Western specializes in providing financial services to startups, growth stage companies, and their investors, helping to navigate financial obstacles by providing access to funds and expertise. Pacific Western's customized products and team of venture banking specialists provides a banking experience designed specifically with startups and VCs in mind. If you run a tech company or if you invest in tech companies, it's strongly advisable that you build a relationship with the folks at Pacific Western. Go to PacWest.com to learn more. Coming up next are the takeaways and tips from the episode, The Pitch, with David Brown. Thanks again to David for joining me on the show and sharing his insights on The Pitch. Uh, let's recap some of the key takeaways. The first is on the audience. While investors are the obvious audience for The Pitch, David called attention to the fact that The Pitch goes well beyond just investors. Going through the thought process of the pitch elements is primarily valuable for the founders themselves. This forces them to make choices and get focus around the core value proposition, the specific target market, the problem being solved, as well as other questions. It also becomes the vision and messaging that is communicated again and again to customers, to current and prospective employees, to partners, and even to friends and family members. Ultimately, the key elements of the pitch become embedded in the psyche of the leadership and communicated in a clear way to all stakeholders. And David's follow-up point on the audience related to their ability to process what the startup is saying. As discussed, the investors are often not the target market for the startup and may know very little about the market. It is the founder's responsibility to deliver the key message in a focused, concise, and understandable way. The second key takeaway is on progress. David talked about progress as a key indicator that they look for when evaluating startups. So not progress in the absolute sense, but rather in a relative sense. He wants to see how much momentum and traction has been generated in the recent past, as opposed to a great idea that's been discussed and brainstormed for the past five years, but not executed on. This point relates well to what Steve Blank discussed in episode 28, The Investment Readiness Level. It's not about the value of a startup at a snapshot in time, but rather the delta, the learnings and the evolution of the business over time at the early stages. All right, the third and final key takeaway is called the exit. We talked about how some investors prefer to see an exit strategy while others don't, and if this is a necessary component of the pitch deck. In David's opinion, it's not, and he actually prefers not to see it at all. From his own startup experience, he has never had an exit strategy. His focus was on changing the world and addressing a major problem, not how much money he'd make when he exits. We've discussed this before and have maybe provided some conflicting guidance. I have talked about how I do like to see a slide on exit strategy because it shows me, as the investor, what the multiples are, the general M&A activity in the startup's market, and a directional estimate of the potential return I can expect. But David brings up a great point that this may lead the investor to think that the startup is more focused on the money than the mission. It seems that a startup must first ask themselves who the audience is for their presentation. That answer may indicate whether to include it or not. But another smart approach that I've seen a couple founders use during their presentation is to include a slide on the exit strategy with a caveat. One founder said, I've included this slide on exits because I was asked to include it. I understand its importance to investors, but would rather not spend a lot of time on it. I prefer to spend my time on the business, not planning to sell it. 
Now, I got a good laugh out of that, but it was really pretty smart. She appealed to the group that had interest while not alienating those that dislike its inclusion. Okay, that will wrap up the key takeaways. Let's move on to the tip of the week. And this week's tip is deconstructing the elevator pitch. I was recently doing some consulting for a local, very early stage startup called The Mentoring Edge. They were looking for some help crafting their elevator pitch. So I figured I'd repurpose some of the material I put together for them in today's tip of the week. The best place to start is the pitch deck itself. We often hear experts reference the 10 must-have slides in every pitch deck. They include, number one, the elevator pitch. Number two, the problem. So what problem is the startup solving? Number three is the solution. So how does the startup's approach ideally address that problem? Number four is the market. Who will buy this? Five is the business model. How do we make money? Six is the competition. What current offerings exist? Seven is the go-to-market plan. How and where do we acquire users? Number eight is the team. Who are we and why are we the most qualified for this? Number nine is progress. So what are the key success metrics and traction to date? And finally, number 10 is the ask. How much money do you need and what will you use it for? In all honesty, if I could avoid reading through PowerPoint pitch decks and just get every startup in my deal flow funnel to answer these 10 questions, each in two sentences or less, I could separate the wheat from the chaff in probably 20% of the time that I currently spend. Uh, We discussed today with David the sending of teasers in advance of an entire pitch deck. I am definitely in favor of doing this. Clearly, a deeper level of review is required for great startups, but this would allow identification of those potential great ones very early. So from the 10 must-have elements that we just reviewed, items two through four, the problem, the solution, and the market, are used to create the elevator pitch. A great bonus of going through this exercise and recording these things explicitly is that these elevator pitches, sometimes referred to as concepts, become the foundation for marketing in developing the messaging and positioning for a product. So it's a worthwhile exercise for a number of reasons, and its output flows well as the inputs for other stages of commercialization. And often idea stage founders won't know the key benefit very early on. I think it's great for founders to create three or four elevator pitches or concepts as a hypothesis that can then be tested with customers. Pivoting, adapting, refining, and improving are all parts of this process. So the four main elements of the elevator pitch are number one, the target customer. Who is feeling the pain? Number two is the problem. What is that most critical pain point? Number three is the solution. How will it be solved? And number four is the key benefit. What's the outcome of this solution? I often recommend to early idea stage founders to not worry about a super impactful, hard-hitting, perfectly worded pitch at the beginning. If the basic elements are done well, then it can be optimized and wordsmith later. Fundamentals first, then play around with it. And as a last note, the focus for the core elevator pitch should be the users. There may be other constituents like purchasers or partner organizations that the startup is solving a problem for as well and a separate elevator pitch can be constructed for them, but it all begins with the user. 
So typically, the elevator pitch takes on two forms. Number one is the long-form version. This includes all four elements we just covered. Number two is the short-form version. This includes just number one and number four, the target customer and the outcome. So let's go through an example of the long-form. So the basic construction for the long-form includes all four elements. Uh, so the other day, I met with the founder of Packback, uh, maybe you're familiar with them as they were funded on Shark Tank by Mark Cuban. Uh, let's use this company as an example and keep in mind I'm using hypothetical numbers. Uh, I don't, in fact, know the exact dollar figures for this startup. So we, i.e. Packback, reduce excessive textbook costs for college students by offering a digital textbook rental platform resulting in over $1,000 of savings per student per year. So we first talked about the problem, which is excessive textbook costs, then the target customer, college students, followed by the solution, offering a digital textbook rental platform, and finally the key benefit, over $1,000 of savings per year. We can also flip the order of these elements and ultimately achieve the same message. So it could read as follows. We save college students over $1,000 per year by reducing excessive textbook cost through our innovative textbook rental program. You may think that the wording of this is pretty boring and disinteresting. That's okay. Uh, as mentioned before, it can always be spiced up and made exciting later after the foundation is set. Okay, so the second form we discussed is the short form. This can be used for even more impact and can get your audience curious to hear more. It is rare to deliver the short-form elevator pitch and not receive a follow-up question such as, how do you do it? How is that possible? How does it work? Etc. So recall that the short-form only includes item number one and four, the target market and the outcome. So an example of the short-form would be, we save college students thousands of dollars per year. College students being the market, the customer, thousands of dollars per year being the key benefit. Notice how much shorter and concise this is than the long form, which results in it being a little less descriptive, but having a lot more impact. So the last major question to ask is, who is your audience? In general, a startup's audience falls into two categories. We have that category of people that have had no exposure to the problem. These may be your friends, your mentors, your investors, uh, some channel players. Recall that David mentioned this in his story about the dating app, of which he is not the target market and thus can't judge the value as a customer. And then the second major category of audience is those that are very close to the problem. So these are going to be customers or channel players that really understand the problem at hand because they experience it. So one needs to account for addressing both. And the pitch is different for each. Those that are in your target market don't need the problem and customer profile explained, while those that have never had exposure to the market may still struggle to grasp the concept even with an excellent descriptive elevator pitch. On a rare occasion, these two can be the same because the mass public is very familiar with the problem and benefit. To provide a quick example of the long form for each audience type, the first is not in the target market. So this includes all four elements, and it's the same as the one we went through before. We reduce excessive textbook costs for college students 
by offering a digital textbook rental platform, resulting in over $1,000 of savings per student per year. Number two is the target market. So this only includes two elements, the solution and the key benefit. Again, these are current customers experiencing the problem, so you don't have to explain who the customer is to them. This one reads as follows. We can save you over $1,000 per year by eliminating the need to purchase textbooks. All right, the final note on this is to practice often and know what the most common objections are. I like to refer to these as the yeah, but responses. Knowing the top two to three key reasons why customers won't adopt and or why customers don't believe your solution will work better allows the founders to address these objections. In sales, startups, or ideas, you'll always get the yeah, buts. In the packback example, I'll come up with a few examples of what these could be. So the audience may say, yeah, but the publishers will never allow their material to be rented because they'll lose money on purchases. Where, in fact, maybe they've shown that they can create additional incremental revenue for publishers that is usually lost to the used book market. Another objection may be, yeah, but students don't want to get their material digitally. They'll want a physical textbook. Where, in fact, maybe they've done research on college-aged students' behaviors and content consumption, and they've found that the majority actually prefer everything in digital format. It goes without saying that framing a response from the customer's standpoint using data, research, or an actual customer quote can be much more effective than saying, we believe X. So whether you're a startup founder or you are advising early stage founders, it becomes clear that the elevator pitch provides the foundation for focusing on what's critical and communicating the value that's being created. Whether the audience is internal or external stakeholders, nailing the pitch is the first step of many in building a community of believers. That will conclude this cram session installment. Jump on the TFR website at fullratchet.net today to sign up for the newsletter and receive all the info on special content, episodes, and the best articles written on startups every week. Until next time, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. We'll see you next time. <laughs>